You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number two. Today, we are talking about finances with Megan Raboose, aka the family finance mom on social media. Megan is a former Wall Street hedge fund analyst and investment banking analyst. Those were her jobs before becoming a full-time stay-at-home mom, where she now applies her savvy financial skills to her family life. She is a pro at explaining finances in easy-to-understand terms and gives approachable advice that anyone can implement in their lives starting today, so you don't want to miss out on today's episode. Welcome to Mothergood, where we strongly believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. I'm your host, Emily Carney, and I'm so happy you are here. Listen in on authentic and positive conversations to get the best practical tips to help you live to your full potential as a mom. Our content is also judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. If you are looking for a meaningful motherhood community and ready to thrive, not just survive, you are in the right place. Mothergood is a nonprofit organization funded by our generous donors. If you like this podcast, please consider joining them at mothergoodco.com slash give. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. And today we have Lauren Michelle as a co-host. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to be on the show joining Emily today. And we have a really great guest that I'm really excited for you guys to hear what she has to say. Our conversation with Megan was so good because she gave so many practical tips. And that's something that I never really hear from financial gurus. You know, they're always talking about these unattainable, lofty goals, and it's kind of impractical advice that they give. So I really think you'll get a lot from this episode. Yeah, I loved um, her whole approach to finances in that it seemed like the way she framed things was all about taking back control of your money and being responsible and giving yourself freedom now and in the future to make the best possible decisions for yourself or your family, whatever situation in life you might be in. Um, I, I think there's a tendency these days to kind of frame yourself as a victim that life happens to. And the way that Megan talked about finances completely reverse that pattern and put the power back in your hands and really emphasized personal responsibility and planning. Right. And she answers questions that are universal to everyone, such as how should we budget? And probably the most important question, how can we stick to that budget? How should I manage my student loans? How much debt should we have? Should we take that next vacation? And should I buy that latte? These plus many more questions that Megan answers. And she also tells us that we shouldn't be keeping up with the Joneses because the Joneses are broke, shockingly. I know the word finances is such an uncomfortable word, but I want to encourage you to lean into that discomfort and embrace it because it's really an area that all moms and individuals really struggle with and don't really like to think about. But it's so, so important. And I don't know why it's kind of trendy to be broke. You know, everyone kind of makes it seem like it's a cute thing, but it's not cute. And it's one of the biggest areas that couples even fight about. So it's really important to have our finances in order and really get a handle on them. So whether you need short-term advice, such as how to manage your finances better on a day-to-day basis and some practical tips for that, or if you have long-term goals such as saving for retirement, you don't want to miss this episode. 
Yes, and you can follow Megan at, at Family Finance Mom on Instagram. She has, I just started following her today. She has some amazing tips and advice on Instagram too. So if you like what you hear today, you can definitely follow her there to get more. And lastly, Megan is generously offering her handout entitled 25 Ways to Save $500, which we are linking in our show notes. So make sure you check those out as well. So without further ado, here is our amazing conversation with Megan. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and also how did you get to the place of becoming a finance guru? Ever since I was a little kid, uh, I've been a math and numbers nerd. And so when I went to college at Notre Dame, it led me to pursuing a degree in finance. And then my junior summer, I did an internship on Wall Street, which really opened my eyes to the financial markets and really a career that as a little kid growing up in Texas, I don't think I even would have known existed. Um, And so I started my career as an investment banking analyst, advising big corporations on their finances. And then I did kind of the career jump that many investment banking analysts do and went to work on the what we call the buy side as a hedge fund analyst and made the shift from working for companies to working for investors and researching companies to invest in on their behalf. And then just before I ended up staying home as a stay-at-home mom, I spent the last few years working for hedge funds in more of a fundraising and product development aspect. And I was working for um, quantitative hedge funds that were run by some of the most kind of brilliant PhDs in the world in both math and economics. But what, as you might imagine, some of those PhDs aren't the best at speaking to the general public and translating their ideas into terms that everyday people can understand. And, And so that, I think, kind of gave me the background that I use most today in terms of helping moms understand more about their finances. Um, But when I had my first daughter, I had every intention of going back to work. And as life sometimes throws you curveballs, we had hired a nanny who quit before she ever even really started. And it led to me ending up staying home, which was really something I never thought I would ever do. But it led me to where I am today because I quickly realized that while I was still dealing with finances on an everyday basis. I had a unique background that enabled me to do it in a way that a lot of families can't. And so, you know, it it showed me that a lot of moms need these insights. And um, that led me to starting Family Finance Mom. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think your background is super fascinating. You know, one of the things I think is really cool about your story is that you kind of bridge that gap between understanding financial language and also being able to translate that to your average person who maybe doesn't have the same background as you. Would you mind sharing maybe some of the most common but perhaps avoidable financial mistakes that either moms or families make and maybe what they can do to kind of avoid those or remedy that? I find the single biggest issue that families and moms and women make is really simple. It's living beyond your means. Um, And it often starts with taking on student loan debt for degrees that aren't going to get you a career that then supports paying off that student loan debt. And then it kind of snowballs from there. Um, It gets compounded by kind of the heavy materialism that exists in our society. So, you know, you stare 
at influencers on Instagram with their grand vacations and their fancy cars and their designer clothes. And you feel this need to kind of keep up with the Joneses. Um, And then families feel the need to have McMansions that they fund with mortgages and it adds to your debt and stretches your budget even further. Um, You know, you buy brand new cars instead of used cars or you lease brand new cars and you add another $500 bill to your monthly payments. Um, And so a lot of it is just kind of that keeping up with the Joneses and what many families I think fail to recognize is that the Joneses are broke. Um, And because when you look at the statistics that are out there, the average American family is buried in debt and has little to no retirement savings and can't even afford a five, a four or $500 emergency if it came their way. And so when you frame kind of the Joneses in that respect with kind of the facts as they exist today, you suddenly realize that that's not someone to aspire to um, and that choosing to live differently and to live within your means is actually kind of a better way to live. Um, just in terms of stress and um, future and achieving your future goals and dreams and things like that. Um, And I know it sounds simple, but I really see that as the single biggest mistake that many families make. Um, And I think part of that is just not really understanding debt and how debt works and thinking that, well, everybody is in debt and so debt is okay. Um, And not recognizing that when you're funding your life and your lifestyle with debt, you're borrowing from your future ability to spend. Um, And at some point, you have to reverse that if you ever want to stop working um, and, you know, have free time. (laughs) I really love that you said to live within your means. That's actually advice that I first got, too, when I started my career as an attorney. You know, like when I was going to law school, there were so many people walking around campus saying, oh, well, I'm going to make the big bucks when I graduate. I'm going to be, you know, hotshot attorney driving my, you know, fancy car or whatnot. And then I was shocked with my very first summer internship as an attorney that the two moms who I was working with who were very smart attorneys, uh, that they they gave me that exact same advice. And they said, you know, when when we were working at the big law firms and raking in the dough, we weren't buying those fancy cars. You know, we weren't going on those fancy vacations because we knew that when we had children, we would want to scale back. And that, you know, once you're having all those expenses, you're just going to have to keep up and maintain that lifestyle. So I was really shocked because I just assumed, you know, that all attorneys would be spending all the money they had and living like that. So I, I really love that that's, that's the advice that you're giving. And that's so true. And it's, been so applicable in, in my life as well. Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. And, and it's the example you give is funny because it rings very true for me as well. Um, when I was an investment banking analyst, I was actually working in Chicago um, in a regional office. And I had made that choice because you made the same salary, whether you were working in Chicago or working in New York. Um, and the cost of living is much lower there. And I remember this executive director who was a woman and who had two young kids and lived in Manhattan. She was um, visiting our office to meet for a client meeting. So she was an executive director at Morgan Stanley. Her husband was a consultant at one of the big consulting firms. So you're talking two six-figure incomes. And she talked about the fact that they were like struggling to make ends meet every month. I mean, I can see how that's possible in New York, but it's also the choice, your lifestyle choice that you make. 
And so, you know, it's, it's all relative, right? Like there are people who live very happily making less than the average American family makes. And there are people who could make seven figures a year and feel like they're broke. Um, and so it's really, it, it's kind of the expectation and the lifestyle that you set for yourself and realizing that, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. That's so true. And that's actually one of the questions that we had for you too, is to talk a little bit about spending habits. I know that on your social media site that you talked about how money doesn't fix bad spending habits. So do you have any practical tips to have a healthy spending habit? Sure. Um, First, I want to talk about kind of the word habits in general, because habits aren't inherently bad. Um, the word, you know, habits are just repetitive behaviors and they can be good or bad. So habits can serve you well if you set up good habits. Um, and good habits are really the daily actions that you're going to take to make your financial goals and dreams happen. So the key is really filling your daily routine, your weekly routine, kind of your monthly routine with those good, healthy spending habits. But unfortunately, uh, what you see with a lot of families is that you have less, I won't call them bad, but less favorable daily spending habits. And they add up very quickly. Things like daily coffee stops, which can add up to hundreds of dollars every month and thousands of dollars every year. Things like eating lunch out versus bringing your own from home. Um, Eating out in the evenings on the weekends instead of meal planning and cooking at home. Uh, And when you have these expensive habits or you get caught up in these habits of convenience, you often end up living at the very edge of or even beyond your means. Um, And, you know, you're stretching your budget um, farther than it really has to go. And then what happens is the second you get a raise or maybe if you get an unexpected windfall, like an inheritance or a bonus, you start spending that before it's even in the bank. And sometimes you might spend it two or three times over before it even hits your bank account. Um, And so the single biggest tip that I would kind of give with regard to spending habits is to encourage healthy spending habits by actually being aware of what you are spending and where your money is going. Because for a lot of people, they don't even realize it. Like they don't realize that their $2 a day coffee habit times both you and your husband is over $100 a month. Um, And so I think that's why budgeting is really important. Um, because that's what gives you kind of the lens of visibility into where your money is going every month. Actually, I think that's a great segue into actually talking a little bit more in detail about budgets. And it seems like something that is a struggle for a lot of people, myself included at times. Um, it's It can be hard if income fluctuates or um, if you have unexpected unexpected expenses that come up. Do you have any tips for approaching how to make a budget in different situations and also for sticking to it? Because it seems like that's one of the hardest things for me personally, if something comes up and like you said, it's often something out of convenience, like failing to plan ahead and pack a lunch. So you go ahead and buy it because you know in the short term you can afford a lunch, but long term it makes it hard to stick to a budget. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how to make it easier to stick to a budget and how to motivate yourself to do that too. So where I think that many people go wrong when trying to budget is they're looking for or trying to use some type of one size fits all formula. 
You know, they want to follow a model that somebody else laid out for them, somebody who's living somewhere else that says you should spend 50% on your needs and 30% on your wants and put 20% into savings or something like that. Or that says housing should never be more than 25% of your budget or some other generalized rule of thumb. And the problem with that is that personal finance is called personal finance for a reason. Like it's, it is personal. Um, and everybody's life and lifestyle and cost of living varies um, and can vary really dramatically depending on where you live. And if you're trying to use kind of one of those set formulas um, versus what your reality is currently, it's going to be next to impossible to make those shifts overnight. Um, and you'll never stick to a budget like that if you don't know where you're starting from to begin with. Um, and just I'll give a little marketing plug here for a minute. But next month, I'm actually launching my Busy Moms budgeting course. Um, and it, I follow a simple five-step repetitive monthly process. And it starts with building your first budget by looking at your actual historical expenditures. So you're building your first budget from your real life not someone else's kind of self-imposed formulas. Because once you know what your real life looks like, and kind of like I said before with spending habits, when you become more aware of what those habits actually add up to, it's much easier to curb your behavior and make those behavioral changes than just to say, you know, if I sit here and say, okay, you should spend $400 on food every month. Well, if you're currently spending $800, that's a dramatic change overnight, right? Um, and so it, when you start from where you are actually and then set goals to ratchet it down or get under your budget, um, that's much more attainable than trying to you know, force a square peg in a round hole. I love that. It's meeting people where they are instead of trying to corral them into something that might be unrealistic for them originally to start out with. Exactly. And and the other thing too, I would say in terms of sticking with it is a big thing that I try to lay out for people almost on a daily base, basis in kind of my Instagram posts and um, in my you know regular blog posts is that it's really important with personal finance to have a why, um, to know what you're working towards. And then if you frame every decision, you know, every time you go to take out your wallet, or take out, you know, your debit card or your credit card or whatever the case may be, and you ask yourself, like, how does this help me get to my why? It becomes much easier to say yes or no, um, because every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else inherently, um, and so that's kind of the other kind of behavioral element, I guess, I would give you to making it easier to stick to your budget. That kind of reminds me of a post I saw where you said that we pay for things with hours of our life. I really just loved reading that because I guess I never really thought about it in that perspective at all. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, no matter people's business or products that they're trying to sell or whatever, when you talk to any type of customer, one of the common excuses that everybody has is, well, I don't have enough time. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about money. It doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, a course. It doesn't matter if you're talking about trying to get fit. Like time is always a hurdle because the only thing that moms or families or anyone really wishes that they had more of than money is time. And so when you're working for a paycheck every month, you're essentially exchanging hours of your life for money 
which we then exchange for all the stuff that we buy and pay for. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but when you don't have money to buy stuff and you're buying it with debt, you're essentially committing your future time, your future income, um, and borrowing from your future earnings power. And so if at some point you don't shift that balance, um, you're never going to give yourself the gift of time. So like I, I would, I think of saving and investing and um, finding passive income streams as giving yourself the gift of time. And so, you know, same thing, like when you buy stuff, you're, you know, you're spending your time <laughs> or the time that you already spent to earn your paycheck. Yes. Yes. And that really rings true to me again, going back to the lawyer scenario, since I am one, so <laughs> bear with me, but that just reminds me that I've been reading so many articles recently that, you know, big time law, uh, you know, big time lawyers, basically, they're taking pay cuts because they don't have time to even enjoy the money that they're making, you know, so they're making, you know, solid six figures. And then since they work 24 seven, they really have no time to enjoy the money. And then when they take a pay cut and then they're working a job with better hours, they actually have more time to enjoy, you know, even if it's less. And I know that I found that with, with myself, you know, I was working in litigation for a few years and yes, I mean, I was making a great salary, but if you never have vacation, you never have time to enjoy that. It just kind of makes it, you know, really put in, in, into perspective that you're sacrificing your time to get that, that paycheck. So I just really love what you said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember when I was an investment banking analyst and worked 80 to a hundred hours a week and people, people don't understand that that's possible, but it was. <laughs> um, and like you would get this benefits package when you first started and it's like, Oh wow, I get four or five weeks vacation. And I don't even think I took one. And right. If, you can. And if you took one, like it was crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I'm working part-time now, so it's it's a little different. So yes, I'm making less, but I enjoy my life so much better. I have more time and it's just a better work-life balance overall. Absolutely. Um, kind of bringing it back to borrowing from your future self. This is a topic that's um, near but not quite so dear to my heart right now. Um, I'm actually a medical student, so I'm actually in the process of burying myself in debt um, in order to pay for my schooling. And I think it's something that's a huge struggle and very relevant to many couples, especially in our generation today. Um, many who already have, you know, even over six figures of debt. Um, so it's it's kind of too late for a lot of people, even if they wanted to avoid taking that on, or maybe it's necessary for the career that they want. Could you talk a little bit more about um, how, to how to decide when to take on debt and how to be smart about your debt if it is something that's necessary for you? Sure. Um, you know, student loans are, in many ways, I think that they're kind of the next big bubble, um, much the way that that mortgages were, um, you know, 10 years ago. And when you look at the cost of college, it's dramatically changed over the last 50 years. And really even so, even more so over the last 20, um, when you look at the cost of college, it's kind of almost hockey sticked in terms of growth. If I look at like the day I started college to today, 
Um, it's growing far faster than inflation. It's surpassing wage growth. And the problem with that is that, you know, we all go to college to ultimately get a job. Um, and so when you look at it in that respect, you kind of need to look at it as an investment. Um, because whenever you're laying money out for something, you need to be expecting to get a return for it. And what's happening is that the cost of college is becoming so cost prohibitive that you're not ever going to get a return on that investment if you don't choose wisely. Um, and like you said, some people, they've already made their decision and they're living with that debt. But just to kind of give you um, like my personal example as an example, so when I went to Notre Dame, I think when I started, it was something like twenty-eight or thirty thousand a year, um, and I was very fortunate to have merit scholarships. Um, but I still graduated with like sixty thousand dollars in student loans, and so of roughly half of my education, I paid for with student loans. And my first job out of college, I was making fifty-five grand a year. And a good rule of thumb, uh, just for people who are still evaluating this is you really should try to limit your total debt for school to no more than one times your first year salary, or you're going to find it very difficult to live and support yourself and make payments on that debt. Um, and then the other thing is when I graduated, I was able to consolidate my student loans back then at like record low interest rates. I think I got them down to maybe even less than 2%. Um, and so that's very different than the environment that people are graduating with today. And if you fast forward kind of, I don't want to date myself too much, but if we fast forward the 20 years since I started college to today, um, the cost of that same Notre Dame education has almost tripled. But the same job coming out of school, I think now pays like 75 grand a year. So definitely hasn't tripled. And yet people are still taking that degree and pursuing that career path. It's just the economics look very, very different now. And so I think it's more important than ever that parents are guiding their children because when you're 18 years old, you're effectively still a child and yet you're making this decision and entering into these contracts that ultimately can have a very dramatic impact on your life forever. Um, you know, kids today, and I say kids, graduates today um, are delaying big life decisions, things like getting married, things like having starting a family, um, buying a house, all of those things because they're crippled by student loan debt. Um, what I would say if you're already in the position where you have that debt is, you know, explore things like debt consolidation. If you can consolidate at a lower rate, um, there are moments in time kind of where rates move up and down, like pay attention to what bonds are doing. And when rates dip, you may be able to consolidate your student loans at a lower rate than you're already paying. Um, I would definitely, you know, do all that you can to pay on time and make those payments because it's when you uh, fall behind or make late payments that it ends up getting more and more costly. Um, and, and, at, and at some point too, you basically need to take whatever job you can to make the most money you can to pay them off. Um, you know, I think there's there's a lot of politics today around student loans and eliminating student loans. And, and the reality is, is that no matter how old you are, 
And no matter what degree path you choose or what college you chose, you entered into a contract and agreed to pay that money back. Um, does there need to be reform around student loans and the cost of college and all of that? Likely, yes. Um, but that doesn't change what you know where we are today. I guess is the advice I would give. No, that's that's definitely really great advice about the amount of student loan that you should take out not being or not exceeding one times your first annual salary. That's definitely advice that I didn't receive. Luckily, I was fortunate enough to not take on too much debt after grad school. Um, but the interest rates are such killers. I was so shocked when I, you know, I had only had to take out a very small loan, but the interest rate just in a one year was, you know, a few thousand dollars. So as soon as I saw that, it's like, wow, I'm paying that off right away. <laughs> you know, I just can't afford to to accrue those astronomical interest rates. And and I think unfortunately too, you know, you have to be cognizant of I think kind of unfortunately gone are the days of where as an 18-year-old kid you go to college to find yourself. It's too expensive for that. Oh, definitely. Um, and if you're going to a private school, you know, unless your family is independently wealthy, which mine certainly was not, um you can't afford just to go and figure it out once you get there. And if that means taking a year off and going and doing an internship or volunteering in a field that you think you might be interested in to validate that for yourself or starting at a community college to get basics out of the way and live at home for a couple of years. Cause guess what? When you graduate, nobody cares where you started. Um, and, and the reality is too, is that there are many jobs that, it doesn't matter if you go to a public state school or a private school or an Ivy League school. Um, you know, my mom was a teacher and like I went to Notre Dame with kids that went on to become teachers, which I think it's a great vocation, but like Notre Dame doesn't even offer a degree in education. So they were taking courses to get certified at St. Mary's, which is the all girls school across the lake and like in but paying Notre Dame prices. <laughs> Um, so it's just, you know, you have to think about the decisions you're making, the investment that you're making and the return you expect to get on the, on the back end. I think that's very important. What you said too, about how people use college as a way of finding themselves and how it's prohibitively expensive to do that these days. And I, I like what you said about kind of paving an alternate path, whether that's taking the year off or starting at a local community college. I think if people felt like like it was less mainstream to go straight to college, to go straight to a private university. I think that would go a long way in changing kind of the way we view college and, and our education, which is very important. But like you said, you, you have to be smart about it because it could Im impact your life for decades. And I don't think 18-year-olds think about that. Well, and the other thing too that I think a lot of people overlook is there is this misconception that everybody goes to college or that everybody has to go to college. Um, and the reality is, is that I don't have them right off the top of my head, but I want to say only like a third of kind of working people today actually have a college degree. So there's a plethora of jobs out there, you know, and things like trade schools. I mean, there are high five and six figure jobs that can come from trade schools. 
Um, and that is definitely a viable option too, if that's where your skill set lies. So I think it's really more, you know, knowing yourself, knowing your skill set and finding that right fit. Um, and, you know, it's not always the $300,000 education that is going to be the best use of your time right. and money. That, no, that's definitely great advice. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's gone viral recently in the finance world. I saw this viral post and all these t-shirts and mugs being sold about buy the effing latte, basically. And I saw that you really strongly disagreed with it. And I know for me personally, I, you know, I don't go get coffee that often just because I have a hard time paying that much for coffee unless it's a special occasion. But I, I, I don't know. It was it was interesting to see that being advertised and toted as being a good financial decision to buy a latte when that just seems so counterintuitive to myself and something that I haven't done. But I would love to hear your take on it and if you think that's good advice or or bad advice. Yeah. So Sally Krawcheck, who is a very very highly respected, experienced, talented woman on Wall Street. Um, she founded her own investment firm that really targets women um, as investors, which is something that is desperately needed and is, you know, a great a great thing. Um, and she wrote this post that went completely viral about, you know, the buying the effing latte is not the problem. Uh, and I find it really frustrating because, and I think the reason it went viral is because it was telling millennial women, especially what they wanted to hear instead of what most women need to hear. Uh, and here's the thing, that it may not be that your daily latte habit that's busting your budget or preventing you from investing, but it's a symptom of a larger problem. And she said it because there are bigger hurdles than that that women face when it comes to finance. And it's things like you know the gender wage gap and the gender investing gap and the fact that as women, we will outlive our spouses, statistically speaking, and that because of that, over 90% of women at some point in their life will have to manage money on their own. Um, and many of us are still deferring to our significant others to do it for us and don't have a clue. Um, and that may be too harsh, but maybe not. <laughs> and those are all bigger financial hurdles than the daily latte habit. But, and this is a big but, I absolutely believe that your spending habits matter. And our materialism and our spending habits of convenience, they add up and they add up fast. So there was a recent study by Acorn, um, which is the the online investing app, and they found that their average user, and they have well over 3 million users, um, they found their average user spent over $1,100 a year on coffee. And for 40% of their users, it was more than they saved for their retirement. So just think about that for a second. If that's the case, you're literally drinking away your future um, and your ability to ever stop working for coffee. Um, and so, you know, and then you, so this post went viral and they're now selling mugs with the saying on it. Um, I think one of my followers told me they're selling them for $23. Of course. <laughs> Full confession. I used to be one of those people and I worked as a barista for a while. So I was convinced that nothing should separate me from my latte. It made me feel good. It made me happy. Um, and my husband and I did take a look at our finances and we realized how much we were spending on coffee and it kind of made me feel sick to my stomach. So I think, like you said, it does add up and you think 
you know, you think it's a little three or four dollars here, but like, as you said, it can add up to thousands of dollars quite easily. And I think, um, as you also said, it kind of translates to the other permissions that you give yourself to spend money. If you're willing to let yourself have a little convenience here, uh, you're more likely probably to do that in other areas of your life too. So, Right. And, and I, think, I think she tried to frame it kind of as it's a form of self-care. And I think that in today's society, we try to frame lots of things as self-care. And yes, self-care is important, but it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to break your budget. It doesn't have to prevent you from saving for your future. No, definitely. That That's such great advice. And that kind of reminds me too of um, something else that I've seen you share on your social media page as you said that, you know, what people spend money on is where their values lie. And I found that to be so true myself. You know, it's a lot of people will say things like, oh, well, we can't quote afford that, but then they go off and, you know, spend astronomical amounts of money that, you know, in other areas that I, you know, I personally don't spend money in. So it's, it's just so interesting that people do, you know, their values are reflected in their spending habits. So can you touch on that subject? Sure. And, and when I shared that recently, actually, I caught a lot of flack. Um, I shouldn't say a lot. There were a few people who thought it was being judgy. Um, and what I'll say is like, I'm not going to tell you what your value should be. I'm just saying that when you look at your budget or where your money is actually going, it's like holding up a mirror to, you know, we make time and money for the things that matter to us. And so, you know, what matters to you can matter to you and can be different from what matters to me. Um, but there's a lot of people in the U.S. today that feel broke, that feel like they are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, and the reality is that the average household here in America earns close to $60,000 a year. And when you look at that number globally, how it compares to the rest of the world, we are wealthy. We are all extremely wealthy. Um, and it really comes down to the fact that you've got to stop comparing yourself to the people next door or the people in New York or the people that you see on Instagram. Um, because the reality is, is you're only seeing kind of, and I've seen these go around too, kind of the diagram that's like the tip of the iceberg. So you're seeing like the best moments of people's life. You're not seeing how they paid for it. You're not seeing what their balance sheet looks like. Um, you know, you're not seeing when people post that like they're going to declare bankruptcy because they've overextended themselves. So like those are the things that you don't see. Um, and that is kind of, I think, what a lot of people need to keep in mind in terms of perspective. And, you know, one of my girlfriends and I kind of talk about this a lot is that when something doesn't add up, like when you see somebody's lifestyle and then you think about like their jobs and you're like, I don't know how the math adds up there. It usually doesn't. Um, and that's the, you know, that's their choice. That's the way they're choosing to live, but that can put a lot. I mean, finances are stressful um, and you can create a lot of unnecessary and undue stress in your life by living beyond your means for the purpose of impressing others instead of just living your own life. Right. It's so funny how we're such creatures like that, that we 
want to keep up with the Joneses and we want to do what everyone else is doing. And, you know, we just want to fit in besides just being our own person and being comfortable in our own skin and just being okay with who we are. Uh, that just kind of reminds me a little bit to tying it back to our mission for mother good, you know, that as moms, we just try to always keep up with what other moms are doing. And sometimes we do things not not because we've necessarily decided that they're best for our family, but just because we want to be like everyone else, you know, or do the sports that everyone right. else is doing, even if we might not have time for that or whatnot. So this is a question that we ask all the moms on our show, but we would love to hear from you um, a little bit about how you find that balance between being a perfect mom and telling yourself it's okay not to be a perfect mom and it's okay to be a good one instead. So I would say my perspective on motherhood has probably changed like 180 degrees since I first became a mom. You know, when you go from everything you think think you're going to do and all the rules you're going to have in place to then three kids later, it looks a lot different. Um, What I would say, and I think this is true, whether you're talking about personal finance or parenting, um, you have to set the priorities that are important to you um, and your family and filter all of your decisions through that lens. Um, And they don't need those priorities and the things that matter to you don't have to look like somebody else's. Um, you know, and, and I, I really see, you know, as my kids have grown up past the toddler stage and are now kind of really becoming their own little people. Um, I see my job as a mom to like expose them to things and then help them find what they're passionate about and then support those passions. Um, and for some of my kids that's sports and for other of my kids that might not be. It might be music. It might be dance. It might be, you know, one of my kids is loves chess club at the library um, and that costs us nothing. And so, you know, it's, it's encouraging them to become the little people that they're destined to become and providing, you know, I look at my job as a parent is kind of providing the platform for that, not to force them into what the kids next door are doing or, you know, what my best friend's kids are doing because they're all unique individual little people. Never in a million years did I ever think that I would be a stay-at-home mom. And just making that transition from a intense finance market-driven job to being a stay-at-home mom was kind of a transition in and of itself. Um, I'm also very type A and very routine oriented and kids will definitely challenge that. Um, I, you know, for me, I thrive on routine um, and I do try to use routine as kind of a source of comfort and stability in our home. But I've also learned the importance of being flexible. And now also as a work at home mom, since I've become a blogger, um, you know, I struggle with the fact that I don't, I'm not able to get done all that I would love to get done. And what I remind myself of is that I'm a mom first and a blogger second. And so what doesn't get done this week will get done next week. And I'm fortunate that I have the ability and flexibility to do that. Um, But it used to like make me crazy. (laughs) And, you know, you can drive yourself insane. You just, you have to set your own boundaries, I guess what I would say. 
just kind of sometimes when it comes to parenting there, I, I think flexibility goes a long way. Definitely. It's, yeah, it's, it's easy, easier said than done, right? <laughs> right. Definitely right. an ideal to strive to. Well, thanks so much, Megan. I know Lauren and I both uh, learned so much from talking with you and I know that everyone listening did as well. So thank you so much for taking the time uh, and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. And thank you again for having me. Thank you so much for listening in on another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation today. And as a reminder, we are a nonprofit organization. So if you feel like that you've learned a lot from this episode, please consider becoming one of our sponsors at mothergoodco.com slash give.